And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Good. Um, just finished my recondoing my clothing. Yeah, we've been sort of doing some clothing organization in our closets for the past two days, um, doing the, the KonMari method of movie condoing right of uh, organization we're not like i mean we are sort of like identifying stuff we want to get Don't rid eat. of but i think the at least for me the focus was more on just like organizing like putting everything in a much more like space saving and easy to find and not cluttered way Basically, I took out all of the things that didn't fit anymore and made mental notes of, like, what I do have that fits Mm -hmm. um, and then worked my way through the clothing that didn't fit about whether to donate it, give it to a friend, or keep. Mm -hmm. It was a bit about organization, but really it was about, like, taking stock of clothing that actually fits. There was a few pieces of clothing um, that I got rid of. Nothing so much about fit as so much um, stuff that had just been worn so much that it was getting raggedy. They were well-loved. Right. And Um, now it is time for them to go into the great clothing bin in the sky. Right, exactly. Um, But the, uh, the stuff about the organizational part of it and the decluttering, a big part of that for me, what motivated it was just like treating my clothes better. Mm-hmm. Um, and wanting to like treat my clothes better and not have them just be so like kind of stuffed into a closet. Well, I'm not sure how to transition into talking about horror movies. We're watching one. It was a real horror show. We purged right through our clothing. I mean, I don't know if it was a horror show. It was a pleasant experience for me. <laughs> Regardless, today we are watching The Face of Marble from 1946. Now, is this marble as in, like, the stone, or marble as in, like, a bunch of those little marbles, like a cat-eye marble? I suspect it's marble like the stone. Okay. But I I don't know. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> this will be the final horror movie that we see released under the name of Monogram Pictures. Okay. As America kind of moved into the post-war years, horror movies were dwindling in popularity. We're sort of in the decline period, the downswing of horror movies right now, because for the most part, in terms of a B-movie genre, their brother film noir was becoming a much more dominant genre in this period. Yeah. Monogram also would be going through a lot of changes, and by the next time we see a movie released by this studio, it will have a different name and different owners. So this is sort of the final monogram horror movie, um, even though technically the studio will release more in the future. The director is our old friend William Oneshot Bodine, uh, whose previous Scream Scene appearances have been The Ape Man and Voodoo Man, both of which starred Bella Lugosi for Monogram. 
what I love about his nickname is he's most well known for doing cowboy movies, mm -hmm. westerns. And it's a great like western nickname because it's like, oh, one shot Bodine, like he'll he'll strike you down in one shot. <laughs> So you can find out more about William Bodine by listening to those earlier episodes, but in short, his deal is that he was sort of a an up-and-coming and then big-deal director in Hollywood in the 20s and early 30s who left to go to Europe to make some movies there, and that didn't really work out for him, and when he came back to Hollywood, everyone had kind of forgotten about him, and he couldn't get his career back to where it was before he left to Europe, and he ended up making... B-movies at B-movie studios as a way to continue making a living and basically resigned himself to making these movies as quickly and efficiently as they could be made because the more of them he churned out, the more he would get paid mm -hmm. because you're paid on like a per-movie basis when you're the director. Um, hence the nickname One Shot Bodine. It's not referring to like him doing big long takes like Russian Ark, it's about not doing more than one take per shot. Yeah. An example of his kind of attitude towards making these movies might be found in a story where a monogram executive asked him if he could speed up production on one of his films because they needed to get this into the theaters by Friday. And William Bodine's response was, wait, you're telling me there's people who are actually waiting to see this? <laughs> The movie's writers uh, were all B-movie veterans, the kind of guys who slaved away in the B-movie salt mines all day and night. Uh, the one of the writers, Edmund Hartman, would go on to be the showrunner of the classic sitcom My Three Sons for the last ten of its twelve seasons. My three sons. I got three sons. My three sons. Not the theme song. Okay. Instead of Bella Lugosi, who by this time had served out his nine-picture contract at Monogram, and that contract was not renewed, the central mad scientist role this time around is played by John Carradine. Oh, nice. Who was his assistant the last time we saw Bella Lugosi in a Monogram movie? <laughs> the student has surpassed the master. Right. Well, I mean, the last time we saw Carradine was in House of Dracula, where he likewise had replaced Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Co-stars of Carradine in this film include Claudia Drake, who might be best remembered today as the protagonist's girlfriend Sue in 1945's Detour. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. The good girl. The good girl, yeah, not Anne Savage. There's also Robert Shane, who would go on to portray police inspector Bill Henderson in the 1950s Adventures of Superman TV show sort of Superman's main police contact on that show. Superman's Jim Gordon. Right. Shane recalled when shooting this movie that Carradine was like a workaholic because when all the other actors went to break, you know, for lunch or whatever, Carradine would sit memorizing Shakespearean dialogue for the Shakespeare company that he ran on the side. Gotta have hobbies? Well, for Carradine, the Shakespeare Company was the main thing. He did all of these B-movies so that he could fund it, because it was his company. Yeah. Also in the cast is uh, African-American actor Willie Best, a.k.a. Sleep and Eat. Mm-hmm. Um, You've seen him before. That's right. His deal was, like, as an African-American actor, he made his way into credited 
roles in white pictures, which is a pretty major accomplishment for an African-American actor in this period. And he did this by leaning into minstrel show style darky stereotypes. So his roles in movies were typically sort of comedic caricatures, uh, racist caricatures of African-Americans in servant positions. You know, he would be the chauffeur or the bellboy or the elevator operator or whatever. When did we last see him, though? That was, um, Bella Lugosi was playing a mystic and someone was, like, buried while alive, but he snuck out. Oh, that was, um, Night of Terror. Yeah. But that was, like, in the 30s, I think. Yes. And, uh, Willie Best was kind of one of the main guys who was doing this. The others would be Manton Moreland and, of course, Stepan Fetchett. And Willie Best was pretty well-respected at the time for his comedic talents, but... Of course, these roles were racist stereotypes at the time. Like, these were meant to be roles that made fun of stereotypes of African Americans. And they have, you know, only gotten more cringy, you know, over time. Great. Yeah. So, uh, The Face of Marble was released on January 19th, 1946, to largely negative reviews. So people went to see it. Right. Uh, at least a couple. Um, and today it is available in the public domain, so you can find it on many different, um, like, public domain collections of old horror movies. Probably the best one is there's a Shout Factory release. I think it's just called Classic Thrillers or something like that. But because it's in the public domain, we've got it up on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. Which you can find on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Face of Marble from 1946, directed by William Bodine. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Face of Marble from 1946, directed by William One-Shot Bodine. Mm-hmm. Ben, <laughs> uh, what did you think of this movie? I think it seemed like it was trying. Yeah. Um, the funny thing about Bodine is that, like... He's talented. Right. Like, like people are like, oh, like, he only ever did one take. Like, his movies are real trash. But it's like, he was, like, a talented director before that, right? It would be like if, you know, Sam Mendes just suddenly started doing, like, direct-to-Netflix, like, schlock, right? Martin Scorsese um, just did that, Ben. You can't, <laughs> you can't just call it schlock. But I I do see what you mean. Like, he's not one-take Bodine in the sense that, like, oh, someone tripped, just keep rolling. Yeah. He's not an Ed Wood. Yeah, exactly. He's, he has the talent to do it in one shot. Well, he has the competency to get a movie made in a week. Um, yeah. Now, I also think that, like, there are story elements in this that are kind of neat, but I think the thing that lets the movie down is basically that it's a monogram movie, so it can't achieve really, like, what it would need to achieve for this to work, and I think the script is bad. 
yeah, this script introduces a new plot element or trope every 10 minutes. Yeah, the movie keeps changing what it is, and it never really goes where you think it's going to go. Which, which does keep your interest. Right, like... like at least your attention. Yeah, like, it does mean that if you've seen a million of these, what starts out with a very tired premise does, you know, hold you just from how nuts it's getting, but it's hard for the movie to, like, feel coherent. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you give us the plot? So, a lot of old familiar tropes here. We start at a manor house on a cliff by the sea where a mad scientist is doing mad science in his basement. And by this point, it seems that this is just the, like, assumed setup of scientists in movies. Like, we've long stopped justifying why the scientist has, like, an old manor house by the sea or why they're independently wealthy. They just are. They're doctors. Right. Our lead mad scientist is Dr. Charles Randolph, played by John Carradine. And he is in the business of, that's right, bringing the dead back to life. (laughs) Uh, You know, like all of them. And he has (laughs) an assistant who's played by Robert Shanes, Dr. David Cochran. And they've been, I guess, working together for some time. It seems to be a situation where Randolph had the basic idea of let's bring the dead back to life, but Cochran seems to have done most of the work on, like, the the, the how you actually achieve that, the nuts and bolts. Yeah, so a standard research assistant. Right. <laughs> now, because they're by the sea, they have access to a sailor who drowned from a boat that sank nearby. So they've brought this dead corpse in. And the key to this procedure is getting them fresh, which has also been, like, a running thing in these kinds of movies. Uh, This procedure is meant to bring back the recently dead, not the, like, dead and buried for a long time. It's, It's revivify, not true resurrection. So they bring this body in, and there's both an injection the body gets and some Frankenstein style electrode stuff. And they manage to bring this guy back to life, but he's got this, like, ghastly pale ghoul face, almost like a face of marble. Right. And that's the name of the movie, Ben. <laughs> yep. And when he comes out of it, he's sort of in like a weird undead ghoul zombie state. And then one of the electrical generators uh, blows out and he dies. David, the younger doctor, seems to be having some like reservations about this work. He's not really sure about keeping going with this. It's not because, like, bringing the dead back to life has any kind of moral problem for him. He's quite in favor of that. I mean, they've been doing this research a long time. He's worried about the police catching them. And Randolph is like, don't worry about it. Like, this is a drowned dude. We tried to bring him back to life. We failed. He's just as dead now as he was before. We huck him back in the ocean. He's just a drowned (laughs) dude again. Like when you toss back a fish after catching it. Now, because they're in a big manor house, there is, of course, a bunch of other people living here. There's Elaine, Dr. Randolph's wife, who is much younger than him. And her backstory seems to be that she had some kind of injury. And Randolph, who's like a premier brain surgeon, fixed her right up. And then they got married. About a year ago. Right. And she is having her own doubts about her husband's work. 
Um, she seems to maybe be in love or have a crush on Dr. Cochran, who's much younger. And she goes to David and she's like, oh, you know, I'm not sure about the doctor and what he's doing these days. She happened to kind of walk in on them when they were bringing that dude back to life, but not enough to really see anything other than a dead body on a table and a bunch of Strickfadden equipment going off. And she says... That to, should set off some alarm bells, right. though. <laughs> and she says to David, I don't know what the doctor's doing, but I'm sure it's sinister. I just feel it in my heart. This conversation is being watched by another person who lives at the house, and that is Maria, the housekeeper. And I don't know what her deal is supposed to be. Textually, she's from the jungle. <laughs> and she's a voodoo practitioner. The doc picked her up as a housekeeper back when he lived in the jungle. And he learned about all the voodoo stuff. But her loyalties seem to lie much more with Elaine than with her, you know, employer. And she likes to skulk about the house and listen in on conversations, taking advantage of the fact that nobody seems to pay attention to, you know, the help. Now, why I say I don't know what her deal is, is because she has an accent that sounded to me like Spanish. But at times, like, I thought she was trying to do a Bella Lugosi thing. Right. And her skin tone is... Ugh. She's basically white, and then in some shots, it seems like she maybe has a little bit of a darker skin tone created by makeup. Like, they're going for, again, like, what I was interpreting as, like, a Spanish kind of, like, skin tone. Which, you know, isn't jungle voodoo practitioner. Yeah. Now, there is an actually black person in the house, but that's Butler Shadrach, played by Willie Best. And he just does exactly the kind of, like, bug-eyed, darky routine that you would hope isn't in a movie like this, but is. That we warned about in the context setting. Right. So, Maria listens in to this conversation between Elaine and David about how she's afraid of her husband, and she's trying to talk David into abandoning working for him. And I guess what Maria's core motivation in this movie is, even though, man, her actions are all over the place, is she seems to have an Elaine-David ship that she is, like, <laughs> desperate to make canon. <laughs> so, she basically uses some voodoo to try and get that going. She makes up a little voodoo doll fetish of, like, the voodoo goddess of love, I guess, from how the movie explains it, and, like, sticks that under David's pillow and, like, puts it in his pocket and tries to, like, leave it around that will make him fall in love with Elaine. David, when he finds this thing, is like, uh, this is weird and creepy. So he throws it into a vat of acid and destroys it. And this makes Maria faint and fall down the stairs. And then when David finds her, he's like, you know, don't worry, Maria. Like, you're going to be okay. And Maria's like, you destroyed the fetish. Now, like, the goddess will curse you and everyone in this house. And all will have things that are bad befall on them. And this is basically just victim blaming because all of the weird voodoo shit that happens in this movie is as a result of direct rituals that Maria herself does. Yes. So, yeah, this is just some straight up voodoo victim blaming. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Chuck is pretty upset about. Chuck. Yeah, Dr. Charles Randolph. He's pretty upset about the fact that his experiment didn't work. So, With the sailor. Right. He needs a new subject. And one of the other 
individuals who lives in this house is Brutus, uh, who is Elaine's Great Dane. And she loves him very much, and he is very smart and follows her around everywhere. And so the doc figures, all right, well, I'll just give him a lethal injection, and then we'll bring him back to life. And if it works, I never have to tell my wife anything about killing her favorite dog. No consequences. (laughs) And so he does this, and he brings David in, and David's like, um... This was a bad idea. And they try to bring the dog back to life. At first, it seems like they've failed, but as they're walking out of the laboratory, they hear barking. So they go back and they find... Ghost dog! Yeah, so Brutus is back alive, and he's barking at them, and his barks sound really weird, and he's really, like, aggressive, and he's cornered them in a corner of the room, like, snarling at them, and David's trying to get you know, this animal that just was killed and then brought back to life and is probably in shock to calm down. But Chuck's reaction is to pull a revolver and shoot the shit out of that dog. And he, like, empties, like, the whole revolver into it and (laughs) nothing happens because Brutus is a ghost dog, as proven by the fact that the dog's next move is to just walk through a wall out of the house. And so... (laughs) And no one mentions the gunshots. No, no one in the house seems to have heard them. So David and Charles are like, uh, I won't tell anyone that just happened if you don't. And when Elaine asks about what happened to her dog, uh, Chuck's response is, I took him to the vet. He was acting up. They've got him under observation. I'm sure he'll be fine. (laughs) Uh, not, not, not good, um... Not good lying. Yeah. Like, he could have gone with, like, he He was... He ran away. Or he seemed sick, so I attempted to treat him, but he went like rabbit and I had to put him down. I threw a ball and he ran over the cliffs into the sea. Anything. But this is just like a kick the can down the lane kind of solution for this problem. Meanwhile... Police Inspector Norton has been asking about the house. He's an old friend of Dr. Randolph's from back when they had sort of a uh, Hannibal Lecter, Will Graham sort of relationship solving (laughs) crimes. And he's back at the house being like, hey, Doc, so this body that washed ashore of this drowned sailor, uh, we did an autopsy and he didn't die from drowning. He died from getting the shit electrocuted out of him. And you had, like, a massive electrical generator that blew on you the other night, and you went into town and bought a new one. That's just a thing you can do. (laughs) And so now I'm kind of... (laughs) Capitalism. And so now I'm kind of suspicious that maybe you had something to do with this dead guy. And I'm here on, like, a courtesy call to be like, hey, Doc, tell me it ain't so. Dr. Randolph's reply is like, well, I wish I could tell you anything about my research, but I can't right now. Wait till I have the paper published, and then you'll be able to read it in, you know, an expensive scientific journal, and you'll understand that there was nothing wrong (laughs) happening at all. And the inspector's like, well, that doesn't really allay any of my fears whatsoever, but I... Good enough for me. Well, he's like, "Mm, okay, I guess I'll try and, like, find some other evidence to clear you because you haven't been helpful at all, and hopefully it doesn't just lead me back to you. Um, It also then turns out that Ghost Dog Brutus is Vampire Ghost Dog Brutus and has been (laughs) wandering the countryside, ripping the throats out of local livestock and draining them of their blood. We don't get to see any of this, but we hear about it in conversation when Inspector Norton comes back to the house to be like, hey, a dog matching yours in description has been going vampire on the local livestock. 
a farmer tried to shoot it and the bullets just went right through it. And then it walked through a wall. What's going on, Doc? <laughs> and Chuck's uh, explanation this time is hemomania, which is that it's some animal out there that, you know, its blood has some deficiency. So it's been drinking blood from other animals to make up for that deficiency. It's it's the blood craze, hemomania. And Inspector Norton's like, how does that explain the bullets and the walking through walls and shit? And Dr. Randolph's response is like, hey man, like, I know that they say science can explain everything, but like, there's just some shit out there that we can't explain. And Inspector Norton's like, well, hemomania, huh? Wouldn't have thought about it. Blood craze. I guess you learn something new every day. Bye, Doc. <laughs> now, David's been pretty depressed, you know, because of the dog killing and the ghosts and the trying to bring things back to life, but they have a face of marble and the police sniffing about and all of that. <laughs> and Chuck picks up on this. He's like, hey, David, what's up? And David's like, oh, you know, I'm not feeling so good. Charles thinks, well... You know, you've got a girlfriend back home. Clearly, you're just missing her. And he sends for her and has her brought in. And so David's fiance Linda, arrives at the house. This upsets Maria because, you know, this is getting in the way of her David Elaine ship that she's trying to, uh, you know, artificially induce via voodoo. So she uses voodoo to, I guess, command ghost dog Brutus to walk through a wall and attack Linda in her room. And when Elaine, whose room is next door, hears Linda screaming, she comes through the door, turns on the lights, there's no ghost dog. And Linda's like, well, I'm terrified. And Elaine's like, why don't you spend the night in my room? And Linda's like, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. And so they sleep together that night, not in that way. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's how that goes. Except that Elaine asks Linda, hey don't tell anyone about the ghost dog. And Linda's like, well, I guess since you asked nicely. So Maria's like, well, I guess I gotta, you know, really take actions into my own hands. So she prepares the voodoo death smoke. Uh, it's like a little jar with some smoke that comes out of it that kills you. And she places it in Linda's room. What she doesn't know, however, is that Elaine observed that Linda seemed to sleep better in Elaine's room, and has offered with Linda to switch rooms for the night. Thus, Elaine is in Linda's room when the voodoo death smoke goes off, and it kills her. Yep. Maria's like, shit, I fucked up, and faints. The two doctors and Linda manage to discover dead Elaine because of the smell of the chemical burn coming from her room, and they grab Elaine, take her into another room, find out she's dead. And that's when David's like, but Doc, we can bring people back to life. And Chuck's like, no, no, like, we fucked up with that one dude, and we turned Brutus into a vampire ghost dog. Like, the procedure <laughs> clearly doesn't work, David. And David's like, no, no, like, I've, I've fixed the formula. Like, I figured out what was wrong. Like, trust me, we can do it. So they bring Elaine down into the laboratory with Linda to watch the procedure, which is like, Okay. And they do the deed to Elaine. Oh, Ben. They do the experiment procedure. Okay. And she starts to come back, and then like the guy at the start of the movie, she has the face of marble. And Charles is like, well, see? 
face of marble. We fucked up. This is bad. It, it, it's not going to work. David's like, don't worry. Like, I've figured it out. And he has a shot prepared, and he gives it to Elaine. He's like, see, it's all going to work out. And her color comes back into her face, and she wakes up, and it's like, hurrah. And then she looks around, and she's like, David, David, where are you? Oh, David, are you here? And David's like, yeah, Elaine, I'm, I'm right here. And Elaine's like, oh, good. Everything will be fine now that David's here. And Linda's like, uh, and Chuck's like, uh. uh. So Linda's worried that David's been having an affair with Elaine. And David's like, no, I, I don't love Elaine. I didn't even, does she love me? I, I didn't even notice. And meanwhile, Dr. Randolph is depressed that his very young wife is in love with his young assistant. That's when he goes into the room where it happened. And he finds the jar that the voodoo death smoke was in. And he goes, oh shit, Maria tried to kill my wife. So he goes downstairs and grabs a, um ornate uh, letter opener off of his wall. <laughs> it's like a dagger. It's a dagger, but it's like a real small ornate, like, it's clearly a display dagger. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and he is gonna stab the fuck out of Maria with it. But David finds him. And he's like, no, Doc, no. Like, there's a better way. Like, murder is not the answer. <laughs> and he convinces the doctor not to kill Maria and takes the doctor, you know, up to bed. And everything's fine. Other than the fact that, like, maybe you should have fired her. Like, don't kill her. But maybe have a talk with her. Don't just keep allowing her to go shuttling around the house between, like, listening in on conversations slash doing voodoo rituals. Also... She did just murder someone? Yes. Um, and even if you're like, well, we brought her back to life, it's still attempted murder? Sure. Yeah, so like, that's a criminal crime. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Do something about this. So, later that evening, Dr. Randolph goes to his writing desk, and he's writing something. But we never find out what it is that he's writing, because Maria, who overheard the earlier argument, and generally just is always watching all the time, uh, she voodoo's Elaine. And Brutus. Right. Into coming downstairs. And this is when we discover that Elaine is also a ghost and can walk through walls. And is a zombie? Well, yeah. So, I mean, they're... It's never really explained what the fuck the procedure turns people into, but it seems to be a ghost vampire zombie. That's That seems to be what they are. Um, because the voodoo, with the voodoo command, that sort of makes them zombies. zombies. So Maria zombies them downstairs, and she gives Elaine the ornate display dagger wrapped in a in a, a cloth, and hands it to Elaine. And Elaine zombies into the next room and stabs her husband in the back. And that's the end of John Carradine in this movie. He dead. And you're like, wait. So wait, what's this movie? What's happening in this movie? Yep. So the next day, the police are here, and it's CSI time. And they're questioning everyone, and Maria's like, Well, you know, I didn't see the murder, but I did see David and Charles, like, arguing over a knife. And they said something about Elaine. And she kind of nudges the inspector in the direction of, you know, Elaine and David were having an affair, so David killed uh, Dr. Randolph over this affair. They get the knife, they fingerprint the knife, it's got David's fingerprints on it, so they're like, hey David, you're under arrest, you're coming with us down to the station. Meanwhile, Linda's talking with Elaine, and she's talking things over, and she's like, hey, 
What the fuck is up with your weird voodoo witch housekeeper? She seems to have had something to do with all of the terrible things happening around here. Like, what's up with that? And Elaine's like, I don't know. You know, she's she's nice. And so Linda figures, like, okay, something's messed up here. Like, that housekeeper has something to do with what's going on. I'm getting out of here. Meanwhile, at the police station, David's trying to explain his side of the story to the inspector. And the inspector's like, well, you know... I got your fingerprints here, man. And David's like, wait, if I'm here and Dr. Randolph is dead and Elaine and Linda are back at the house, then they're back at the house with Maria, who's trying to kill Linda. I've got to go save Linda. And he socks the police inspector in the (laughs) jaw and drives off towards the house. Meanwhile, Shadrach, the uh, butler, has gone down to the police station. He's like, hey, guys. Uh, I actually saw everything that happened that night. It was definitely Maria who, like, voodooed up Elaine into killing her husband. And the police inspector's like, huh, well, I take your word for it. And he gets some cops, and they get into a car, and they start driving back to the house. Meanwhile. (laughs) I think that's the third time you've said meanwhile. (laughs) If that's just the way this movie goes. Maria has voodooed up Elaine and Brutus into attacking Linda in her room. And David makes it back to the house first. He runs up to Linda's room, and he's tussling with Brutus on the floor, and Elaine's going to choke Linda on the bed, because the undead in this movie are both corporeal and non-corporeal. They've just, you know, they get to walk through walls, but they can definitely choke you and, and, and bite you to death. It's like Kitty Pride. Right. She can choose to go through walls, but it's not like she's going to just sink through the floor. Right. And then the cops show up, and they run to the room where they hear all the commotion, and they turn the lights on, and there's no Elaine or Brutus. Because I guess lights defeat ghosts. Or vampire ghost zombies in this movie. (laughs) Anyways, the cops are like, hey, like, what's going on? Like, where's Maria? And they go down to Maria's, like, voodoo lair and find that she has killed herself with the voodoo death smoke. Elaine and Brutus, meanwhile, have walked into the sea. The end. (laughs) When we just see the footprints of, like, Elaine and Brutus going into the ocean, I just kept thinking of that one, uh, like, Bible quote. There were two sets of footprints. Oh, I mean, that's not a Bible quote. That's, like, just an evangelical Christian-like story. But, well, in any case, it reminded me of that, where it, when there was one set of footprints, that was when I carried you, I'm yeah. Jesus. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> what an ending. So, this movie's kind of all over the place, so I feel like our discussion might be a little all over the place. Um, what, uh, what, uh, what do you want to talk about? Um, I will say some good things first Mm. um i do commend the effort for the spookiness with like the lighting and trying to do some atmospheric stuff the special effects are pretty like minimal it's just like what's that called double exposure or whatever yeah um you know they're they're trying to do some cool stuff so i commend that that effort especially with like trying to film a movie in a week yeah they're clearly trying to do some spooky shadowy lighting even though because it's a Poverty Row film, it often just degrades into you can't see what's going on because it's too dark. Um, there's some cool attempts at some neat camera moves. Like, you can tell the movie's being directed actively. The double exposure effects all, like, look fairly good. The face of marble makeup is just like we put some chalk on these people's faces. And overexpose them. Yeah. Um, but they do some neat, like, 
sound effects stuff with Brutus's bark once he's a ghost. I couldn't really tell what they were doing, if it was just an echo effect or if they were, like, playing the barks backwards or what it was. It sounded like a tape delay. Mm, like it was out of phase. Well, like, when you have tape delay, you tend to hear the thing repeated, but this sounded like one of the repeated ones, but we don't hear the... Original. The original or huh. other ones. Huh. Yeah, so there were some attempts here, but obviously they were kind of held back by the budget. Unfortunately, the plot goes off the rails. Yeah, well, so the plot has a lot of neat ideas that I actually really like. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything in here is tropes. This is all stuff we've seen before. It's getting mixed together in a way that, I mean, I wouldn't call it an interesting way, but it is a new and different way. I, I feel like with what the writer is doing with this plot, this would make a really good drinking game where you drink every time a new horror trope or plot point is introduced. Sure. I did like that Dr. Randolph isn't evil. Um, yeah. He's, he's just really dedicated to reviving the dead to the point where he's willing to, like, cut some corners here and there. But, like, once he realizes that Brutus has come back as a ghost dog, he's kind of like, yeah, we need to stop doing this. Like, we're not doing any more of this research. This clearly has gone off the rails. Like, let's not. Yeah. And, you know, he's not, like, he's not bringing the dead back to life to, like, create an undead army to, like, you know, <laughs> conquer the yeah. world. Like, he's doing it because he wants to bring back people who have, like, recently died in accidents. Like, he's trying to find a way to just do, like you know, a process to revive people, not necessarily, like, bring Napoleon back to life or something. Like, there's there's no <laughs> there's no weird evil scheme here. Yeah. Um, like, even in the case of Maria, who takes her shipping too mm-hmm. far, I think with everything that's going on, there's no, like, evil guy for the sake of the plot, evil for evil's sake kind of character. It's not that there's, like, character development or in-depth character backgrounds or profiles. Yeah, everybody's a type here. It's just that their, like, actions are all over the place. What they're dealing with is all over the place. The thing about Maria is, like, she's the closest thing to just kind of, like, a walking plot device in the movie. Yeah. Because she sets everything off for her motivation being, like, hey, I think the wife of my employer should get with a younger guy. What she does is completely out of proportion with all of that. Like, to go as far as, like, I'm going to mind control the wife of my employer into killing my employer, that'll sure solve all my problems. Like, and the fact that she's, like, so racially ambiguous, it's she's just like an old foreign witch woman. Yeah. That's, that's what her deal is. And, you know, we don't really get to actually talk with her in a way that would let us in on her motivations. Mm -hmm. Her only dialogue scenes are really with Elaine, and they're just like, oh, like, my lovely one, my pretty one, like, how are you doing today? And, like, that's about it. Yeah. Um, One thing that I... I mean, I don't blame this movie for doing this. It's just how voodoo has been treated as a trope for, like, up to this point. But I'm really, like, tired of seeing voodoo used as, like... Basically another name for magic. Yeah, it's just lazy magic. Yeah, instead of just going with, like, witchcraft or something. And the reason that they do voodoo is because it's, like, not white. Yeah, it's exotic, and I think because of the fact that, like, it comes from Haiti, and, like, there was a book, and it's kind of a real thing, it lends it, like, the exoticism and the fact that, like, the audience is vaguely aware that it's real lends it some, like, credence as a threat in a way that witchcraft doesn't 
because like the audience's impression of witchcraft is like Margaret Hamilton from Wizard of Oz. Fair, yeah. Um, but it's just tiresome, especially when like we have movies like I Walked with a Zombie, which like treat voodoo completely differently and respectfully. Well, I think what Face of Marvel is a really good example of is the way that ideas that start as like interesting or well researched or well written or well founded degrade over time into cliches and tropes. You know, like the whole thing of like the doctor with the big manor house. Well, you know, it used to be that you got an explanation for that. He was from a noble family like Frankenstein, or he came into some money, or it's a house that he rents, or, you know, is his summer home, or mm -hmm. whatever. And, you know, why are all these people here? Well, I've invited them here for this one night or whatever, you know, rather than my assistant just happens to live with me for reasons. Um, you know, the mad science used to be a little bit more explained or a little more motivated. And now it's kind of just degraded into like, well, this is what mad scientists do. This is how they are. Like you used to have explanations of like, you know, where their research funding was coming from. And now it's just, this is how people do. Same with voodoo. Like, it started in well-researched movies, like White Zombie or I Walked with a Zombie, and then degraded into being just this lazy form of exotic foreign magic. The whole, like, mad scientist, young bride, young hero, like, triangle used to be, like, a real thing. Like, it starts in Frankenstein, and it's there mostly just because originally they wanted to kill Dr. Frankenstein and have his bride end up with the other guy. And then it kind of evolved into, well, we can motivate the evil mad scientist by having him be jealous of the two young lovers. And now they're just a set of characters. It's just a stock set of characters that exists in this movie because that's how these movies work. Like, this is a really good example of how that kind of happens over time to the point where you look at this movie and it's like things just happen because that's how they do. So what you're saying is the face of Marble is Twitter today. <laughs> um, okay. You want to elaborate on that? The way that like a joke or even like a piece of like, not necessarily insight, but someone thinking aloud, pontificating, right. Right. gets like retweeted and spoofed on so much that within a day, you're like, oh, that happened last week. Like, the 30 to 50 feral hogs right. happened, like, during the summer. Yes, correct. And it feels like it happened last year. And I mean, well, and also with Twitter, like, ideas that start out maybe as part of, like, you know, an article someone posted or a tweet thread someone did that have, like, a larger context get boiled down to one-sentence versions, then judged on that, then, like, people are writing new tweets in response to that, and by the time you get on Twitter, like, you can't even find the original thing. There's just everybody talking about this thing that has been simplified down to, like, a, you know, completely nuance-removed version of the idea. Yeah. Good thing, good, bad thing, bad. Right, exactly. Robert Shanes, who plays Dr. Cochran, is... Fine? Su he's supposed to be like a 20-something or 30-something young <laughs> assistant. You know, he's got the fiancé, he's working for the like older, more experienced doctor, he's an RA, all of these things. But the actor, Robert Shanes, was actually five years older than John Carradine. And, like, they've got John Carradine made up to, like, look older and all of these things, 
but like even in like a bad public domain copy where a lot of the details kind of lost, it's still obvious that he's at least middle-aged, which makes all of the times that Carradine calls him my boy completely hilarious. <laughs> the racist stuff with Shadrach is bad. I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect. It's exactly on the money this caricature, this stereotype, this stock character. Not really, there's no, um, you know, subversion or new take on it. Um, but it is fairly minimal. And... In the sense that he's rarely on screen. Correct. Yeah, he's barely in the movie. Which is a double-edged sword. Yeah. For an actor. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it sucks that he doesn't have much to do, but it's nice, like, as an audience member, that I don't have to suffer through a lot of that shtick. Yeah. And I guess he does, like, sort of save the day at the end. Right. With, like, being like, no, here's how the doctor actually was murdered. Mm hmm Yeah. But, like, he could have saved the day a lot sooner if, like, when he was seeing this all transpire, he just took, like, three steps to the left, opened up David's door, and was like, hey, Maria's about to kill some people. Like, nobody in this movie acts like how a person would act in that situation. Yeah. Um, I mean, how would you react if you saw a ghost dog vampire come through right now? Uh, I would freeze in terror and then probably let it kill me. I don't know. That's what they do. Sure. <laughs> um, I think the thing that's weird here is like the mad science voodoo mix makes it kind of hard to ascertain what's supernatural and what isn't. Like, is the fact that they become ghost vampire zombies... Like, is that the result of the scientific procedure? Yeah. Or is part of that from the, like, voodoo? Did the science make them non-corporeal? Or, like, what? Like, what is going on? So I think, like, given the timeline, Brutus and then later Elaine coming back as ghost versions mm -hmm. um, is due to David burning that doll. Huh. Because the sailor doesn't become a ghost. Sure. And then why is Brutus a vampire on top of it all? Like, it's it's just, it's a lot. Yeah. Brutus is a vampire because the writer was like, oh, vampire ghost dog. That sounds great. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think if there's a weakness to this movie overall, it's that while I was watching this movie, all I could think was like, this would be a lot better if it was told from either the inspector's point of view or Linda's point of view. Yeah, coming into this crazy right, exactly. Situation. Like, instead of being told by the point of view of the mad scientist, like, imagine if it was, okay, here's the movie from the inspector's point of view, right? Yeah. A body washes up on shore. And, you know, at first it looks like a clear-cut case of drowning. But then the medical examiner's like, actually, this guy was fucking electrocuted. And it's like, <laughs> well, what could generate, like, that much electricity? Well, it would have to be, like, this kind of generator. Well, hey, Dr. Randolph was in town the other day buying that kind of generator. So then you go in to his house, and there's a lot of weird, spooky shit going on. Like, there's a young assistant who seems to be a little bit wary. <laughs> Sorry. The idea, there's a young assistant. That's spooky as shit. There's a young assistant <laughs> who seems to be wary about what the doctor is doing. The doctor's really cagey about what his research is about. His wife seems a little bit off. There's a mysterious voodoo housekeeper. Um... <laughs> And you're like, you're just describing Dark Eyes of London. And you're like, this is all very strange, uh, but there's nothing really here to arrest anybody on, so I guess I'll keep looking for clues. Then the surrounding townsfolk are like, hey, there's a fucking vampire ghost dog going around killing all our livestock. And you're like, 
holy shit, what does it look like? And they're like, it looks exactly like the Doctor's Great Dane. And you're like, well, shit, I guess I gotta look into this more. And you go back to the house, and now there's all kinds of weird goings on with, you know, voodoo murder and shit. Like, that's one way into this movie. Yeah. Or you do it from, like, Linda's point of view, where it's like, oh, you know, I haven't seen my fiancé, David, in so many months, and I, I hope he's okay on that research assignment with that strange Dr. Randolph. Oh, I've gotten a telegram inviting me over to the house. How wonderful. I'll be there in time for David's birthday. And then I arrive, and is his wife having an affair with David? Because she seems to hate me for no reason, and to look at David all the time, really weirdly. Huh. The doctor's also a little bit strange, and he won't say what his research is about. And that housekeeper gives me the creeps, and holy shit, there's a ghost dog trying to kill me. Like, either one of those would be more effective ways into this story that would help all of these disparate elements feel like, holy shit, what's going on? Rather than, holy shit, what's going on? (laughs) And with that, I think we can move into ranking. For sure. I think this movie is, like... If I could sum this movie up, it's A for ideas, D for execution. (laughs) So, where were you thinking of putting this movie, Sarah? Well, when looking at ranking, I thought, well, let's look at the other William One-Shot Bodine flicks we have on here. Okay. The highest is Voodoo Man at number 76, and The Ape Man at number 111. Mm Mm-hmm. Triple one. Yeah. Um, Thinking about... The use of voodoo Mm -hmm. between the face of Marble and the voodoo man. In both cases, it's magic. Right. Um, But the voodoo man is much more fun. I feel like the voodoo man, the voodoo is also much more integrated into the story. Yeah, it's not just this. Here for reasons. (laughs) Um, Like, it's still definitely, like, here for reasons, but not in the same way, you know? But right below that is The Mad Monster, 1942. It is uh, George Zuko making werewolves as super soldiers right, to get to fight back Nazis. at his... Well, yes, to fight Nazis, but also to get back at his old, like, rival professors at right. college. Um, they said I was mad. Well, if it's mad to make an army full of werewolves to fight Hitler, then lock me up. <laughs> Don't think that's a quote. Nope. Um... And now that movie is also from a Poverty Row studio. Um, I think I would put The Face of Marble right between those two. Um, because there, it, like, as much as you're like, D for execution, The Face of Marble, there is some, like... They're trying. They're, yes, they're trying. But also, you, you do have to respect a movie that is willing to keep changing its own premise every ten minutes. Sure. It feels like at Monogram, they looked around and they were like, okay, what haven't we done yet? <laughs> Let's just take all of the bits and pieces and do them all together. It's like it's like the Avengers, if instead of teaming up a bunch of characters, you were just teaming up a bunch of premises. Sure. Um, what was your range? What's funny is, watching the movie and in the discussion, I got the impression I liked this more than you. But it seems that's not true, because my range is below yours uh, Mm. by quite a bit. So, I started by looking for Night of Terror uh, from 1933. 
which is at number 115. And the reason why I thought of Night of Terror was because it's also a movie where a scientist is doing experiments to bring the dead back to life in his house, and there's, like, a weird foreign servant who's, like, sneaking around in the background. It just turns out, in that movie, the weird foreigner isn't actually the bad guy. Yeah. Um, and I thought this was better than that movie, because that movie sucked. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. Looking above that movie, there's stuff like The Monster, La Llorona, Black Moon, and the original Ape Man, which is the other Bodine flick. And I wasn't sure how to place this among those, because La Llorona is kind of cool. It's got that, like, Mexican folklore thing. But I think, like, is this movie better made? I think maybe. It's not as racist as Black Moon, that's for sure. Uh, I think it pulls off its premise better than Ape Man. Monster Maker is kind of where I feel like an equivalent in quality starts to happen, except that Monster Maker had, like, some stuff like watching that dog go upstairs for 20 minutes and then come back down. Then we get to Return of the Ape Man, which is the Lugosi Carradine team-up movie, which I thought was a lot of fun, despite being very bad. Above that, we have Jungle Captive, which I... Yeah... I can't even really remember. It's the one that doesn't have Aquanetta, and she, like, turns back into ape form to kill people, I think. But, like, oh, it's the one where they've got the girl on the table for, like, the entire movie, and they're gonna... Everyone kills each other at the end with Rondo Hatton. Yeah, okay, I remember it a little (laughs) bit better now. (laughs) That was all you. I couldn't help with that. I still don't remember it. Above that is Song at Midnight, which I think is, like definitively better than this movie. So that's what my range ended up being, was 108 to 115, which is a lot lower than yours. If we look at what's between our ranges, that's 77 to 108, which is a big stretch. What's the halfway point between these two ranges? Okay, so let's do some math. That puts us at the sealed room, which is between Spanish Dracula and Edison Frankenstein. Okay. So the sealed room was like these are these are really early, yeah. really early horror. Um, I think sealed room surprised me by how willing they were to go for it for with sure. Watching people suffocate. Um, I mean, Face of Marble also goes for it, but it also still feels like it's playing safe. Like it's playing safe with tropes that are established. Right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not like going for it in terms of violence, but there is stuff that, like, shocks you in the sense that, like, Elaine dying halfway through the movie or Dr. Randolph dying three-quarters of the way through the movie are, like, not things you would expect. Yeah, but it's not like, whoa, they just showed that. Sure. So I'm willing to have that be, like, a new ceiling. Okay. And then if we want to look below the sealed room... I mean, the Devil Bat is right there at 95. Between this and Devil Bat, I think I'd rather watch and play a drinking game of the Devil Bat. Yeah, I would I would rather watch the Devil Bat. Um, they both sort of exist in the realm of, like, this premise is nuts. <laughs> but this movie's premise is built out of other movies' premises, whereas I don't think we'd really seen a movie that was Mad Scientist Kills Animals brings them back to life as mind-controls animals, and sicks them on his rivals to control a perfume company. Yeah. (laughs) What's right below Devil Bat? Right below Devil Bat's The Unknown, which kind of is ranked this low, not because it's a bad movie, but because it's not 
quite a horror. Right. But it's 1927, so... It's hard to compare to a movie like this, whereas Invisible Ray, right below it, is much more easy to compare. What do we think of this versus Invisible Ray? Invisible Ray, while it was still um, a little rambly, like it has that whole like jungle opening and stuff, it was much more focused because it was based on that revenge plot. That's right. Well, sure, it wouldn't be able to compare with the face of Marvel in terms of volume of things. I think the way it uses the idea of, like, a ray to melt statues and stuff like that, I don't know, it's more focused. So right below that, we have basically three out of the, I think, five Mummy movies and Jungle Woman. And the thing about all of these movies is, like, if you sat me down and really worked me, I could tell you what happens in them, but, like, at a glance... I don't remember what happens in these mummy movies. Jungle Woman, like, because I had to remember Jungle Captive earlier, I kind of remember Jungle Woman now just by process of elimination. But, like, these are all very forgettable movies in a way that I'm not sure Face of Marble is. My gut is telling me to put this movie above those. What do you think? Cool. All right, so then are we agreeing below Invisible Ray above Mummy's Curse? Yeah. All right. Then entering the list at the new number 98 is The Face of Marble from 1946, directed by William Bodine. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, drop us a line through our ESC box on Tumblr. You can reach us directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. And you can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us on whatever your app of choice is. You can help the show out by spreading the word. It's the post-Halloween season. We're heading into Christmas. And so if you have uh, someone in your life who's a big, you know, classic horror movie fan and, you know, they're just not sure where the gaps in their collection are. And if they only knew, they could ask for what they wanted for Christmas. If they listen to this show, they might discover some new horror movies they've never heard of before and decide, yeah, I really want The Devil Bat on Blu-ray. And then they'll tell you that, and then you can get them that Christmas gift. So really, Scream Scene is our gift to you. Tell your friends about it. I do need a map to that pitch, Ben. That was a very (laughs) convoluted way of saying, if you share us with your friends, they'll be able to tell what they want for Christmas. Share it with your friends regardless, because it's a good show and you like it. You can also share us with folk on social media. That's what social media is for. Or you can help the show out in a more direct sense uh, by going to patreon.com slash podcast. There you can sign up to be a patron of the night and support us with monthly donations, which, uh, you know, can be your Christmas gift to us. At the $1 level, patrons get thanked on the show. At the $5 level, you get weekly cut content from past episodes. And at the $10 level, you get short stories, essays, written content from Sarah or myself. Uh, And at our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, if we hit that goal, we will start doing a fifth episode every month on horror-adjacent movies. Stuff like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, or the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 
That's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah. Well, we are over at PRC. Oh, more Poverty Row. And it's starring George Zuko. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It is produced and directed by the Newfield Brothers, who are still working at PRC, the studio they founded, despite it having been sold to other people twice now. And it's called The Flying Serpent. Great. And it's been described to me as a remake of The Devil Bat, but with Quetzalcoatl, the uh, South American flying serpent god, in place of an undead bat. Okay. We will determine if this ends up being a horror-adjacent movie. Because this sounds like (laughs) it might be a horror-adjacent movie. It might be really offensive. In fact, it's almost guaranteed to be. (laughs) Almost certainly. We will find out next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!